Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Overlap. I'm joined, of course, by Rion. We are talking about football, and we have a lot of football to talk about. Before we get into anything, um, I don't really have much share about the weekend, because, I, I mean, I had a really good weekend, but the highlight of my weekend was watching football with Rion. There, I said it. It's corny. I don't care. All of you listen to this. Hopefully appreciate it. Rion. What's up? How you doing? Uh, doing much better after seeing you, obviously. Uh, <laughs> this is this is actually now just a, a love and relationship podcast. It has nothing to do with soccer at any point. Just talk about each other for like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was it was great to see. It was it was uh, that was the first time we watched. We've watched a game outside of our outside of either of our apartments. I think in a long while. So yeah, that was yeah, definitely in a while. That was nice. It was it was, was refreshing. Nice. It was refreshing. It was much needed. Like, and then I went into the office today and like actually saw people and talked to people. It was it was nice. It was it was it was nice. I'll leave it at that. I don't have many more adjectives left to describe it, but um, it was a good atmosphere where we, were at, where we went too. We were at uh, Smithfield Hall in um, yeah Manhattan. It was uh, really really good. That was my first time being there. Ellie's had been there for uh, a Classico earlier this year, but that was a lot of fun. That's a cool place. It was it was great. It was a great place. Also, I don't know if he's listening, but Grant Wall, um, I believe oh, yeah. I saw you at the corner of that of Smithfield Hall around there, uh, about 30 minutes before the Liverpool City game started. So if you're listening, um, next time I bump into you, hopefully I'll I'll say hi. I did not want to be that guy this time around. I did because I did mention to Ellie's like when he told me that he saw Grant Wall, I was like, honestly, it's it's I mean, he's it's, he's Grant Wall. He's probably has does not have that many people coming up to him. Realistically. Like maybe in New York, I could easily see it probably happening a lot. more Yeah, because they're just more soccer fans. But um, being outside a, of that, maybe not. Yeah, yeah I mean, he, a, he has almost like a million tw- Twitter followers. So, yeah, actually, yeah. yeah. And I'm guessing like 95% of those are just our American soccer fans. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but, yeah. but yeah, that, that, that also reminds me, like I, I saw on Twitter, um, Michael Cox is one of, one of my favorite writers for um, that's my favorite soccer writers, European soccer specifically, like he writes for the athletic and um, has a great book on the history of modern European soccer called zone of marking. But he, tweeted that he was in the u.s for uh I, I, I for some other reason outside of soccer but like he, he was watching a game he was watching the liverpool man city game in the u.s and he like put a picture of the of the pub that he was at and i was like furiously looking it up afterwards and, <laughs> and did you figure and out where like, it was it, it it was in chicago but it had the same name as a bar that's in that's in philly that i've gone and watched a, a game at before um, so I thought that for a second he was in Philadelphia and, and then, and then like, and then I looked at his picture again and, uh, it didn't look like the one that was in Philly is in the Chicago, uh, Irish, it was this Irish pub. So could have been close. Could have been, I mean, could have been, yeah, well, not, not really with the Michael Cox one, but, <laughs> but that would have <laughs> been defi- cool. That's a definition of could have def- yeah. like that. That's someone I definitely would have walked up to and said something to, because there's not a shot that he would ever or not, not, not <laughs> i'm not gonna say not a shot but like one in 
300 Americans might might walk up to him and, and say something. So, yeah, I, I that one I would agree way more with you for. I actually funny enough, like I have not read his book, but I don't even think I follow him on Twitter. That's that's how far removed from Michael. I obviously obviously like you have sent me every article under the sun. I think I've sent a bunch of written. Yeah, a bunch of. Articles. Yeah, but I don't even fo- I'm going to follow him right now. Eric Stott. Um, he's not like, he's not he's not this super insightful um, Twitter follow honestly I, I, will, I will recommend his books for um, all the time but um, no honestly that kind of just makes me think about um, the commentators for the Premier League games in the US the English guys they all live in England like, yeah granted a lot of them are former players so people probably walk up to them just for that reason but like realistically how many people in england even know that they're commentating they're commentators for us <laughs> just just like it's it's a really funny thing to think about you're yeah, yeah, yeah. for a completely different country that you're not you'll you'll never be recognized for what you're doing uh in your own home country i guess so just a, that's just a weird one it's a weird circumstance i never thought about it that way but if you think about like arlo white and is just absolutely oh, scrumptious yeah, yeah. voice. Yeah, like, yeah, that's a better that could go over well anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, what what a just smooth buttery voice. I I could listen to that voice any time of day. Um, just tell tell me the weather. If he was if he actually like oh. was the voice of Alexa for the weather, I would like an option. Be asking if he yeah, was like the, oh my god, the, the British accent option. Yeah, I can. I mean, I'm not even gonna try and imitate him, but like, it would just be fantastic. <laughs> That's. Uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and he was commentating this game as well too. Yeah, this, yeah. The game this past Sunday. And that is a great segue because that's where we're gonna start this week's uh, <laughs> this week's podcast. Um, at least football content wise. Talk a little bit about Liverpool and Manchester City, the biggest Premier League game of the season bar none um up until potentially the last week of the season depending on how you look at things but rian i thought this game was fantastic all around um i thought it was wildly entertaining for a neutral it was not what i expected in terms of the number of chances that fell to both sides and Still, my prediction of a draw worked out. So I guess that's like a mini win for me. But I guess my first question to you is like, do you think this game really lived up to the hype? There, there was a, there was just so much to unpack. I'll let you start there. <laughs> well, well, first I'll start with like you, you were right on your overall result. I can't remember if you said one one. I said one one. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> it was a bit more. And even when we were watching the game after Liverpool equalized, Elias was. I can remember it very vividly. It was after like fifteen <laughs> minutes. It was one one, and Elias was like, "Okay, well, I think that it was just that fifteen minutes of, of fifteen minutes of like going at each other. Now I think they'll settle down and just and this will end one one." Well, oh, like I constantly during that later. game was like changing my prediction. I went from, oh yeah, no, now now that whole spurt is done. It's gonna be one one. Great. And to uh I think I think our former coach's <laughs> prediction is probably gonna be more accurate. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know. But I mean the the four three was was definitely on the cards if if finishing yeah. was better in that game. It, I mean, not saying that there was particularly bad finishing there, but it, it could it could have been more than two two even. But I think just in that in that sense of um, 
we got an, a very entertaining game. And we also saw a lot of quality in that game. I mean, just, I don't know. I, I haven't looked it up. I don't know how many, like, near-perfect crossfield switches were played in that game from both teams combined. Like, I, just being able to watch not only Trent Alexander-Arnold, not only Tiago Alcantara, not only Bernardo Silva, not only João Cancelo, not only Kevin De Bruyne, like all in the same game, like that passing ability of those five players combined. I mean, it, it was, it was kind of like that was, that was the level that we had expected. Like that's the funniest part. Like that's the level that we expected, and it reached that level. Like the the pure quality on display in the game. Now, neither team played a perfect game. Like that, that's not it. I don't think that's at all what I'm saying at all. Because realistically, if both teams had played better, that game wouldn't have finished two two. <laughs> like, no, for sure. So it, it was um, it was great to see that even at that level, you still can't cover every single space, right? And 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 that was like I think tactically the most interesting thing for me at least. I don't know what you saw. That was de- I I 100% agree with you that was the most interesting thing for me. And like we kind of pointed it out during the game while we were watching it like when Liverpool tried to attack, tried to go forward in the early phases of that game there's a really heavy emphasis on balls over the top in through Sadio Mane, Mane and Salah. And I thought that was a really interesting way of setting up because that's not entirely what I expected. Like I kind of expected a lot of cross field play um, kind of like we saw against Benfica uh, with Liverpool. And of course how that Sadio Mane goal came off Luis Diaz header. Like I expected more of that play versus what we saw, especially like I said in the early phases was very root one. And I think the more I thought about it in that game, the more I recognized, I feel like Klopp had the same, same thought that we did like five minutes after we were like surprised by how this was set up, except for he had it like five days before we did, which was if you commit right outlet potential um, options in Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold uh, on, on the wings, you will get exposed the second you turn over the ball because the, Liverpool were not going to score with every ball over the top, but like it, regardless of how they tried, it just wasn't going to happen. And the second that they let that much space just be vacant to Kyle Walker to even some open 10 yard patch of grass to Kevin De Bruyne, like it wasn't going to end well. And I think that's what Klopp kind of realized. So that like the tactical battle of that was so, so interesting to me. Um, but I think, Rian, I, I had this, I had this thought, I think midway through the first half, where I was like, I don't remember seeing Sadio Mane like touch the ball, and then you were like, no, no, he he, he very obviously has touched the ball. Um, I think there's statistics that you might you might want to share that can back that up. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you were asked you asked if he touched it at all, and yes, you're, and that, that was the only thing we were like half an hour in. I was just like, I don't think. My, has Mane genuinely touched the balls once? I was like, no, definitely once. So he's definitely touched it at least <laughs> once. Um, but you know, you were on the 
you were in the on the right track in terms of he wasn't he wasn't really involved a lot especially in the attacking third of the game um throughout the entire match now granted he did he, he ended up scoring the equalizing goal the second equalizing goal for liverpool and i just think that kind of underpinned the whole the overall theme that we saw in the game where these teams even not playing i think at 100 percent uh as well as they could play right they still negated so much of the things that i that each of them wanted to do to the point where like they had to play somewhat differently and i think for mane it was really interesting because he only had 11 touches in the entire game in the attacking third whereas if you just compare this single game um amount to the rest of the season he had the fourth most single first most touches in the middle third of the pitch for him um when you compare it to the rest of the Premier League season so between that and someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold who didn't have as much of an influence on this game. It was his second fewest touches in a single game this season. The right wing and the left wing of Liverpool really didn't get utilized as much as usual, as usual, right? In the attacking third, at least. Um, Mane had to drop a lot, especially in that the first half where Liverpool had a lot of trouble trying to get out. Um, it, it made it really difficult for the ball to even get to their forwards. Right, and I think they they mess up a few passes. I thought Fabinho missed a, a bunch of passes in that first half, or just got caught under pressure. Really, that that made it really difficult for them. So Liverpool ha- play had to play a little differently because of City's really smart press. They don't they press with this with very similar intensity to Liverpool, but they also press in a more what's the word like a mechanical way? I guess like like it's way more. I, I think mechanical is the right Positioned, word. Yeah. Like, it's it's a little less on on just man marking everywhere, but even from City's point of view, they had their lowest per, um, percentage of possession and their worst completion rate in a in a home game this season for them in the Premier League. So both teams being forced to play differently, like City having to play a bit longer, honestly, right and and. In this game, they had their second highest amount of high passes, which is passes above uh, the shoulder for them in a, in a single game this season. I guess, actually, I have a question for you on that because I always saw that in our notes. But, like, what do you, what do you kind of think the significance of that is? Because to me, what that's telling me, at least, is that, like you kind of mentioned, balls are being played in the air over the top out wide, right? Which we saw a lot of, to be fair. Um I guess there's a correlation. We're not implying causation, but we're we're saying there's a correlation between those type of balls being played and um I guess misplaced passes. Yeah, I, I think it's a you can look at it a couple ways and and the reason I went looking out for that says just from um I think it was John Mueller's article from earlier this morning where he kind of talked about Manchester City played a bit more like Liverpool in that game in the sense of they were switched. They were playing these very long switches and, and granted city does do that at times, but 
how direct they were. I'm, I'm thinking especially the amount of times that Kyle Walker basically just did a 40-yard sprint down the right <laughs> side. And City looked for him a lot from that from that position. And uh, they, they tried to play. They did try to also play the ball a little quicker because Liverpool's press is that good too. So I just think it was it was interesting. I, I think you can look at at the the high passes as yes, they had to play longer, um, but also like the the press forced them to try to to not be able to play the ball low at all either. Right. So yeah, it's just yeah, it's, definitely it's just uh, an example of of how difficult these two teams find it playing against each other, even when they both put up two goals. Like they they're still after playing each other for four straight seasons, they know what's coming and, and they know the exact weaknesses of the other, of the other side. So it, it was awesome. It was awesome to see at the end to um, kind of the respect between the two coaches. And I know like some people want <laughs> some, this some rivalry to be, no, no, go on. Yeah. They want this. Rivalry no, to be I, something else. I, I was, I was going to say some people equate. Um, how do I say this? The, Reaction from Pep at the end of the game, the emphatic reaction to uh, a potential, uh, how do I put this, uh, Oscars esque uh, moment. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Oh, no, that's funny. Yeah, there, there's <laughs> there's a funny Twitter joke where it's like um, uh, basically what Pep Guardiola was doing with that handshake is what Chris Rock thought was going to happen with him and Will Smith. The, so that's a really funny one, but, but honestly, like, it's great to see those. I mean, I guess great to see, like, I, I have no problem. I think it's cool to see that how much they like each other. Um, not saying that awesome. they're like, <laughs> like, like, and, and I'm not even saying necessarily, I don't think that they're that close where they're like getting dinner or like having wine after the game, honestly. But I think there's just like that respect and they just both really like playing against other coaches that are like, aggressive <laughs> like within attacking it's not, i think they just like playing against each other to some extent I think it's just i think they share mutual respect like that's what it comes down to like i think they mutually respect how much each of them have like developed and created these brilliant well-oiled machined teams like that's i feel like what it comes down to is like there's just a mutual respect of like look, I, I appreciate and I can appreciate how you think about things and how you think about a game, how you think about a team construct, things like that. Um, I don't think there's more to it than that. <laughs> like, I don't think there needs to be more to it than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll, I'll code out say like, it's the best in, I feel like for our time. And then I brought this question up with, um, with Mr. Z last, last week or last week. I, I do think this is like the, the best Premier League rivalry of, of, of like my generation, right? Like I'm not putting this on the pedestal of, of rivalries in other leagues because I, I still think those mid-2000, mid, late 2010s, early 2010s, uh, Barcelona-Real Madrid are probably the most intense, like modern, modern football. Again, can't go back any further than that, really. <laughs> they're not alive at that point. But um, just for, for this Premier League game, like you're still, as I said last week, that these are, the two at worst two of the three best uh teams in europe over the last three years and if you want to go back the last five years like two of the five best like at, at worst so these are 
the highest quality Premier League games we've probably seen, just in terms of technical quality of both teams. I'm not talking about what? hatred, just literally technical quality. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And I think, I think, like, think about the coaches that are in charge of that again. Like, yeah, you're talking, you're talking about as well as tactical that have made, quality. Yeah. Yeah. But they've made their mark across Europe with that same framework. And I don't know if I can say, say, say the same about Mourinho. In fact, I would probably say the complete opposite, but it's just different ways of getting across or building a team. I should say not getting across point, but building a team. So I guess like Rian in the context of these two teams and in the context of the title race, who do you feel is best positioned to win the title now? I, outside of just being up a point, I, I, my thing going into this game, and I said it last week, is that I'm just kind of going to assume that both of these teams, it's look, it's not going to, it's almost definitely not going to happen, but I assume that both of these teams are going to win every single game for the rest of the season. Right. And that's most certainly not going to happen, but I, yeah, I get where yeah. you're, I get where you're coming from. And, the, yeah. and it like 99% probably won't happen, but the crazy thing is we have, recent memory what was it three seasons ago when city won like 17 games to finish the season and liverpool won like 10 or 11 games to finish the season and yeah, Liverpool lost yeah, yeah. out by one point so we know that they have it in their capacity to do it right it, it almost definitely won't happen but if you want to just look at it who's likely to more likely to drop points city have a had an easier run for the rest of the uh season i think the average points per game for their opponent is like under one for the rest of the season. Um, and, and Liverpool's is like 1.2 or 1.1 or something like that. But, you know, I, I think they, I think they both have very, the toughest games for both of them that are left are funny enough against the two different North London clubs. Yeah. Like City's city's game against Arsenal, who, as we talked about last week, you know, that was a really tough game for them at the Emirates. And Liverpool's against Spurs, which was an extremely difficult game for Liverpool. I think <laughs> I think it's still the most XG that they've given up this season in a single game. So yeah, the, those are going to be, I feel like, the biggest tests for either of them. Definitely, but Definitely. but but to answer your question, I think I think City do just hold off, hold them off. So. I think that's probably my my likely outcome. the The funny thing is, like, we are probably going to be having the same conversation on the last day of the season, like as in all as, likelihood, as yeah. soon as one of them drop, as soon as city drops points, which again, I, you know, I'm not putting a hundred percent on them at doing that, but as soon as they do drop boys, we're going to have a conversation again. Like, is this, you know, who, who now, but yep. Yes. That's yep. just a, just, that's just a warning for everyone right now. I'm, I'm sure 100%. we will. I'm sure we will rehash <clears throat> this in three weeks. <laughs> and we'll have a completely different take. Like I did with this game, but we move. And we move on to talk about the rest of the top four race. Rian, uh, we were really bullish on Arsenal. We were hot and cold on Spurs as their record quite literally has been win-loss, win-loss for, for several weeks. We'll talk about Manchester United. But let's start with the rest of the top four race and start with Arsenal. Arsenal now have gone, I believe two. it's two losses in a row, um, Crystal Palace and Brighton. Spurs have gone two incredible wins in a row. Um, a 4-0 win against Villa. And how many goals did they put up? 
against or in their uh in their previous game i actually forget um previous game i believe it was five against newcastle five against newcastle and (laughs) and then it was like a few weeks before that they put what five past uh everton (laughs) yeah well yeah we'll get to that in a second but (laughs) but my point is like both of these teams have almost flipped roles i would not say like spurs were taking losses as horribly as they are winning right now but we were talking about arsenal a month and a half ago in the hottest streak that they have been on in years they almost beat manchester city arguably should have gotten something from that game what has happened in the last two weeks true truly like what has because my only my only potential thought is Could they have made changes to a starting 11 that seemed solidified? Could it, could it have been that Lacazette has seen such a massive drop in form and probably should not be in this team any longer? Uh, like, like, what is it? I honestly can't put my finger on it. I, over the, what do we talk about a lot? I feel like during, um, a lot of most of February and March, right? We talked about Arsenal's starting 11 looks so solidified. They didn't play, they weren't playing any midweek games. They were able to play the same starting 11. Like Mikel Arteta specifically was able to play with his version of the what the best starting 11 of that team looks like for weeks on end. Mm-hmm. And I think our feeling was like, if he's, if they're allowed to do, like, if they can do this for the rest of the season, um, then they should finish in the in fourth place. Like their exactly. starting 11 is, is simply better in our opinion, was simply better than the competition. I mean, Arsenal had since that, that January international break, they came back and in the seven games between then and March 19th, which was, I believe, right before the last international break, right? Yep. In seven games where Arsenal had five wins, one draw, and one lost. Game to game, Arsenal made three total changes to that starting 11 throughout those seven games. Three changes. Right? That's and wild. It, 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 it's not something that you expect from any team that is, you know, up around fourth or fifth, because you would expect them to also be playing in, in Europe and, and ha- or at least, you know, playing in other, even domestic cups, right, at the time, which Arsenal were, were out of for that, for a time. Like, that team was so settled. And we didn't get a test of the depth at any point during those seven games. Right. And yeah. now, just within their last three games, they've had to make five changes to that starting lineup. And over the last two games specifically, we've seen big changes. No Kieran Tierney, no Thomas Partey. And I think one of those games, no Gabriel Mart- Martinelli starting either. Yep. We're seeing what the depth looks like on this team. And that was something that definitely we talked i feel like a little bit about we, we, did, January, we mentioned we definitely right? mentioned i don't think i don't think we just to your point like we didn't 
we didn't see the effect because it quite literally was not in front of us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that run that I mentioned started right after the January transfer window closed. Right. So exactly. Um, we're seeing the effects of that, of selling those players, right. It, the depth is not there and I'm not going to go as far to say a Spurs depth is there because right now what we're seeing is them playing their same starting 11 over the last couple of weeks. And, and they haven't had an injury to deal with from that front three that looks really good right now. And they haven't had an injury to the midfield. Um, and, and they've been relatively healthy over the last few weeks. That's kind of, I feel like from the Arsenal side of this, that's the, that's the biggest difference. I mean, I feel, I, again, I'm shockingly agreeing with you a lot. I don't like this, but I, I agree that I think, like, this is my point. I, the only thing I can think of is, like, changes in their starting 11. I think Partey has certainly been one of the biggest reasons behind that, and quietly. I don't, I don't think that's necessarily been talked about enough. I feel like what Partey brings to this Arsenal side is a sense of, like, calmness and, and stability similar to how he did at Atletico. And I think we use the like phrase dirty work a lot, but I don't, I don't think that's how I view Partey. I view him more so as the most kind of modern definition of a central midfielder. And I think that's exactly what Arsenal have needed. And I've said that since he moved over from Atletico, but I think missing his presence is huge because think about, if you think about the teams that Arsenal have played in the last three weeks and the teams obviously that they have lost to and um, Crystal Palace and in Brighton, Crystal Palace very much goes through, let's call it Zahan friends. Like that's pretty fair to say. Right. And they're pretty kind of route one direct team play through the middle. That's, kind of how they play yeah they've become a tougher team to play this this season without a doubt compared compared to previous seasons oh yeah well definitely but i guess my my point is like both brighton and crystal palace i feel like do have similarities between them and a lot of is down to the fact that i just think that arsenal were overwhelmed in midfield over the last two games um this isn't to say that arsenal did not have their chances arsenal could have certainly scored, but I thought Arsenal were overrun. And that's what I think it came down to. Um, now having Martinelli as an exit route always helps, but I don't know if that sugar or just completely paints over the issues that I just mentioned. So no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. And I think like Crystal Palace were so physical with uh with arsenal and not just with arsenal with a lot of teams this season like i think that's been the biggest biggest difference with them compared to previous seasons there's just a higher level of like athletic ability in the team definitely but for brian yeah i mean brian's midfield played really well like i mean Imwepu having a goal and assist he was great i believe they gave this might have been the first time i've seen uh caicedo play for brian before i know he's he's ecuadorian yeah. He came to the team, I think, last season. They've done a really good job at kind of betting him in. Like, he, they did not rush him in. I, I think he signed last January, and, and he's really getting his first run of games right now. So I, they, they made things really difficult for Arsenal. And, again, I think just the depth, I'm not sure it's there. Whereas, like, you, 
especially like up top. I, I the best version of that team has Martinelli in it, no matter what, <laughs> no matter what. Smith Rowe has started the last couple games, and um, he's just not the same type of player as Martinelli. And I'm not saying he's any better or worse. He's just not the same type of player. He's more closely the same player as Odegaard. So it's it's not the best fit between the two of them. Um, as different as possible, as you would say, for Spurs' uh, attacking front three, right? The way that Kulshevsky, Kane, and Son all really complement each other, like, almost perfectly, it's it's really interesting. You know, Kane's always willing to drop, and Son's always making the runs in behind, and Kulshevsky, in general, is just is really enjoys facilitating. Like, he doesn't look for his own shot very much. I know he, he scored this past weekend against Villa, but he doesn't generally look for his own shot and he is looking to supply a lot. He's got great playmaking abilities, but that's kind of the the difference right now. Arsenal are not being allowed to play with their best version of their team and, and Tottenham are. And look, since the end of February, February 25th to be specific, only Liverpool have averaged more points per game than Tottenham. And, and it's huge, huge credit to what, uh, the work that has been done from Antonio Conte in the, in the last um, couple of months, I know they've been going, they haven't been consistent at all, realistically. Right. But we're to the part of the season where if you're hot for two months, like it's going to get you, it's probably going to get you into the champions league. If you're, if you're in this position, right. So yeah, it's tough now. It's Spurs have a slightly easier, schedule remaining and um then arsenal and it still feels like it's going to come down to their their game i think they, i think they play on in may but i don't know at least like are, are you feeling now more likely that spurs finish about um in fourth place than than anyone else the problem it's the problem is i feel like i'm waffling you know what i mean and maybe that's just a byproduct of the fact that I kind of have to based on the team, like the change in form has been dramatic, right? Don't get me wrong. The way that Arsenal have fallen off in the last two weeks and the way that Spurs have scored nine goals over the last two games. I mean, that's a pretty sizable shift. So knowing that both teams are on the same number of points, I believe they're on the same number of points now. um, And Arsenal still have Spurs are above by, I think three points, but they have oh, a game they're in up hand. by three. Yes, after they yes, have a game in after hand. The, um, after Spurs beat Villa, they are they are three points above. But that's what I was going to say. Arsenal with the game in hand, Arsenal have lost three out of the last five. So I I just don't I don't have the confidence right now that they are going to push past. Like think about it this way: Arsenal still have to play not only Spurs right in the North London Derby that was rescheduled. They have to play Chelsea and United and West Ham. And I guess I didn't think about it. Like and Manchester City. And do they have to play Manchester City? Mm-hmm. When do they play City? I forgot. Has that game not been rescheduled? I mean, I don't, I, know I, don't, I don't know if it's been rescheduled, but they have to play yeah. City again a second time. So that's a lot harder of a schedule versus what I'd look at with Spurs have granted a resurgence, a resurgent Brentford. Their toughest game will probably be against Liverpool. They, yes, they do play Arsenal, but the rest are Leicester, Burnley, and Norwich. And I believe Brighton. But, like, 
that's a much easier schedule. So right now to answer your question, Rian, I'm going to lean towards Spurs. I, I hate that I'm going back on it, but Spurs have done a wonderful job and Conte specifically has done a wonderful job of what seemingly is shifting this club away from being Spursy. Yeah, I'm not going to go that far yet, but I'm not, no, no, no I'm got, not, not that far yet, but <laughs> we've got but, eight games. They have eight games left or sorry, seven games, seven games left to not be Spursy. And, and that's if they get I, to the end of the season. <laughs> I love the negative reinforcement. Like they have X number of games to not do this. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> look, too good. Look, seven, seven games left. I can't. I'm not giving them the tie, the fourth place um, spot right now. They they still have seven games left, but I, I look. I'm I'm always gonna bet on Antonio Conte more than more than not. So I, I'm 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 with you. I I think slight favorites now, but um, and and if you look at betting markets and or. 538 like it's they are the favorites now but i'm not gonna go all the way yet and say they're say they're not gonna find a way to mess this up but i feel more confident in them than usual fair enough i'll take that i'll take that. yeah two teams that are on a much different trajectory right now than, <laughs> uh, <laughs> than the team that <laughs> before the season i thought worst case finishes fourth place in manchester united definitely Definitely. Well, Rian, let's shift focus towards that team that you just mentioned. Oh, Manchester United, a one nil loss away to Everton at Goodison. They have won. What is it? One in their last five games. And I don't believe this team is any closer to finishing top four than they were uh, five weeks ago, unless you feel otherwise in a very magical world. Because as you will very clearly share with me in a couple of seconds, these statistics are not in their favor. And they are currently sitting seventh in the table. Not that I can't point to any games in hand that they have over anybody else. In fact, they, yeah, they don't have any. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> what, what? Just give me your thoughts on, I, I don't actually even have a direct question. Um, just yeah, it, just give me your thoughts. <laughs> no, no, no. You, you, you basically alluded to it. Like they've never looked less likely to finish fourth than than any other time this season. Um, even even after losing, what was it, four one to Watford, <laughs> <laughs> to what at that time was Watford's first win of the season, they look more likely to finish like sixth right now than than fourth. Um, the 538 put, league is calling their name. Oh gosh. Yeah. The 538 gives them a 2% chance at finishing um, in the top four while Opta has them at 1%. It, it's really all gone downhill. Um, and again, it's, it's hard to put any blame on the coach. Like it's still, it's so hard to really blame him at all. It's you watch these games and they're just like wondering I don't know, like like where the awareness is on this team in a lot of situations, um, but also at the same time, you're wondering how have they gone this long without, I don't know, players that make sense 
when playing together <laughs> you they're they're midfield obviously we've talked a lot about it it's it's just not remotely close to the level it needs to be to finish in the top four and we thought that I mean I know I thought that just their finishing ability would be enough to just barely get fourth place and what's really happened is whereas the last like three or four seasons they've routinely scored more than their xg right and this season it's not been as emphatic as before they have still they uh have still scored just above their xg but it's it's only by a a couple goals and realistically they they needed to match their uh finishing level in the past few seasons and they and they haven't and it's hard to see this dramatically improving next season, um, considering the amount of you know, dead wood that I'd say is on the team and the kind of lack of production that's coming from the younger players on this team as well. Elias, I don't know if you think if you think the same. I actually, I, I don't think the same. Um... Uh, that sounded harsh. Sorry, I didn't mean that's a go. I disagree. No, um, I think you're. I think you're partially hitting on what I feel like is the major issue, which is Deadwood, and I don't blame the youngsters at all because they're surrounded by people who are. I'm, I don't want to say there for a paycheck because they're they clearly are there for more. I mean, Bruno Fernandez just uh, seemingly extended his contract from thin air, which I don't understand, but um, I don't know why United did that. Um, but my point is like, they're surrounded by people who are not really as motivated, driven, or quite honestly, their head is not in it because I think there's two things really here that I want to hit on with United outside of this Everton game, which was purely just one of the most uneventful, boring games of the season from United's perspective from Everton's. It was fantastic. Like I actually thought Everton played like a decent game. Isn't it isn't but, it funny? Like, is it funny that the direct city rivals of each of those teams played one day later in a game yeah. that looked like looked like a Champions League final compared to <laughs> uh, League One? Yeah. <laughs> like, the day yeah, before. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think I think that's a really good like ju- juxtaposition between the two uh, clashes, right? And. I'll say this about United. I think there are two massive issues that they're going to have, and they're also going to have this in the summer. Deadwood. Let's talk about that for a second. If you think about the players right now that are aging, probably not going to be on the team next season, you think of a number of players, or at least players that should not be on the squad, right? Whether or not they will be, I have no idea. Nemanja Matic, Juan Mata, Edison Cavani is probably gone. Who knows what might actually happen with Ronaldo in the summer? I I probably I would bank on him staying, but I, I, I would highlight him as one of the players that is quote unquote dead wood. Um, Harry Maguire has clearly not been in form and his individual mistakes are costing this team. Raphael Varane is a player that has seemingly not been talked about enough as a player who has not played up to the standard that he was at, at Real Madrid. I think my personal opinion, I've said this before, it's because he's been covered by Sergio Ramos for a large part of his career but I think still a player that needs to be called out. That's six players right there that I just mentioned. Um, this leads me to my second issue with United. 
how do they get rid of these players? What club comes to them and says, I want Nemanja Matic as part of my team. I want Juan Mata. I want Harry Maguire to be a part of my team. I don't know if any clubs do that. So United are kind of in a Barcelona-esque situation. Great, they have way more money. But they're in a Barcelona-esque situation where they may not be able to get rid of some of this dead weight because they have no reason to move. They're on these long-term contracts that, again, from a negotiation standpoint, they'd have to be given a lot to, to get off of. And that's kind of one of the biggest problems with United. They have dead weight, and they have nowhere to move that dead weight. So, quite honestly, Rian, I think the biggest question is how realistic is it that this team gets better? I think it's realistic that they do get better. Um, assuming the right manager comes in, obviously we could talk about Ten Hag. Um, I think a lot of people certainly have question marks about him, but I think everything that I'm reading in the reporting is super important. Like he's asking to be a part of every managerial and club level decision as it relates to his squad. And that's the kind of reach that a United manager needs because Ralph Ragnick right now just does not have that sort of political capital. Granted it's because he is an interim manager. So like he's not going to take the fall for any of this. Um, It's going to eventually going to be, it's eventually going to be on the full-time manager. Uh, So there you have it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's the same thing we've been kind of banging on about this club for, the last few seasons and Manchester United fans themselves have probably been banging on for like eight <laughs> years. <laughs> so, so it's like done. 2013. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So um, now it's, it's just getting a really bright manager in is not going to be enough for this team. And um, the real question is what non sovereign wealth funded club can, can take these <laughs> players off of their hands. <laughs> I honestly, well, you, when you say not sovereign, oh, well, that's tough. Um, <laughs> honestly, I have no idea. Um, I didn't even mention Paul Pogba, who he's out of tra- likely, contract. Yeah, yeah, who likely will not renew. Yeah. So maybe yeah. he goes to a non non state. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm no reason speculating, but I'm really, really curious what the market looks like for him right now. I, I am. I'm very curious as well. Well, Rion. This is, I guess, the kind of the last point on the top four. Um, West Ham, should, do we do we rate them? Yeah, no, With no. I think, a... I think we, it's amazing. They probably still have a great. They still have a great chance of finishing above Manchester United, but um, they, I mean, they do. But they also United do actually have a game in hand on them, and yeah. they, I mean, in the last five, they like, lost three of the last five. Bet, if you had to bet, like uh, you know, this is a team that still has made it. You know, they're one, one draw and they're in the uh, first leg of the European or Europa league. Um, this is still a team that on average is playing better than Manchester United. Yeah. But, but, but again, I think the league, the league stuff doesn't matter quite as much to them. If they finish six or seven, that's still a really good season for them. And right now they have a great opportunity of making it to the semifinal of the Europa league. And, and again, at the end of the season, I think the fans will probably, they finish seventh and get to the semifinals or who knows make it even makes it even to the final of the Europa League that's still an amazing season for them so it's and it's still you'd still probably say it's a better season than Manchester United had so for sure um, I, I think I think the league 
is is less of a priority for them right now and and i i feel good about them finishing in the top seven ish so fair enough i i, I would agree with you there well Good luck to West Ham because I don't know if they'll need it. <laughs> we need that. No, we, we need we need the Barcelona West Ham semi <laughs> We need it. We need it. Uh that's if both teams get through. That's yeah, both at one one, up. right? Yeah. Both both at one one. So big if, but honestly, it's it's looking possible, <laughs> which would be <laughs> oh my god. Uh, we'll get to that point. Oh, I'll cross <laughs> right there. last point on this week's um on this week's podcast i want to start with i guess everton kind of because we were just talking about them as relates to united that's a big 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 win for them just as it relates to the relegation race i know we talked about in the context of united but the fact that burnley burnley also lost 2-0 um i believe to to norwich okay yes to norwich fact check thank you um (laughs) that gives them how many points is it? Three point lead now or four four point? Four point. Four right? points. Four yeah. point gap. Um is that enough of a cushion for Everton? Is I mean I, look, I get yeah, I said this a couple of weeks ago. It's it's gonna be really hard pressed to find me say that I think they're going down, and it has almost nothing to do with rationality. So yeah, it's um I Huge win for them, as you said, after losing to Burnley earlier in the week and Sean Dyche saying after the game that he, <laughs> for lack of a for lack of better phrasing, he basically said to his team at halftime of their match against Everton, in which they end up winning, coming back and winning three two. He basically said, lads, it's Everton to, to, yeah. his, to his team yeah. in not so many words, but if Everton bounced back from that because that uh, obviously was extremely embarrassing. But they bounced back and they um, beat a pretty hapless Manchester United while at the same time getting help from Norwich, uh, um, who beat Burnley. And now you look at the – if you're looking at the strength of schedule remaining, Everton does have a slightly tougher schedule left um, in terms of points per game from their opponents that are left in their schedule. It's higher than Burnley's. But – I, I I'm not ready to say they're totally safe, but I do I, still I, think I, I still think that they'll they'll end up um, finishing a, above Burnley in 17th. I struggle to see Burnley getting more than 30 points for the rest of the season. They're at 24 right now, with I believe eight games left, and Everton is at 28 points. I think they could be good with like four more points this season four maybe five more points. I think that should make them safe, but I, I just still am betting on the quality on the talent of, of Everton um, being able to just get them over the line. Look, it's, it's like, um, it's just like, it's like in, in a scary movie or in any, or in any, this is really morbid, but in any like situation like this, <laughs> I think where, I know where, where you're going, <laughs> where people are being chased, right? Whereas a group of people being chased, you just have to be faster than the slowest person. <laughs> and, and I think, and I just think Everton, they just need to be slightly better than Burnley, and and I think they'll be fine. That is that is wildly morbid, but 
neither here nor there. Um, let's move past Burnley in Rion's twisted world of a relegation battle. Um, has Jesse Marsh been like the signing of the season in terms of managers? Is it possible? <laughs> uh, no, he's they've been very good under him. Like, like the underlying numbers are looking really good, especially when you look at the expected goal against um, versus what we saw under Bielsa. And I think we talked about this a little bit when he was hired. That pure switch from man marking everywhere to zonal marking itself was going to just cut down the the basement of what their defending could be or bring their basement up, I should say. Right? Like, they can still concede goals and we've seen them concede a, a fair amount of goals even under Marsh and we, that's why we've seen those kind of topsy-turvy games but switching the defensive system as well as getting Calvin Phillips back this week I think this was I, I've got to double check this but I believe this is the first clean sheet under Jesse Marsh at least um, that's a huge huge return to the lineup is is Calvin Phillips and I'm not sure if they'll get Patrick Bamford back at all this season, but that's been a huge miss for a lot of the season as well. Definitely. But um, I do think they're, they're, they're safe. They're nine points above 18th now with uh, about eight games left. So I, he's done a, he's done a good job and I expect they'll go back in the summer and they, they'll be in this position again, if they don't <laughs> pick up a, at least a few more players than they did last summer, where I think they, they only brought, one player in um and i think it might mm-hmm. be daniel james so yep yep and funny enough i think that might be the similar path of a couple other united current united players but we'll we'll talk about that next year, season probably so with leads likely being safe in rian's opinion um do, do you even want to talk about the fact that chelsea went from being destroyed by kareem benzema to just destroying southampton like do you do you want to talk about that? Do you want to rave? Yeah, about yeah. I mean, look, look. Uh, che Adams a little easier to handle than Karen Benzema, <laughs> <laughs> just just slightly easier. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, the uh, Southampton. When I saw the lineup for Chelsea and saw that Timo Werner was starting, I'm sure there were some Chelsea fans that were like, "Oh gosh, why?" But genuinely. It makes sense when it's playing Southampton. They're going to play this crazy high line. They're going to try to press super high. And if there's any player that you at least feel could get the chances against that type of team, it was Werner. But uh, the response as a whole from the team was great. Um, they played naturally like much, much better than they did against Real Madrid. And I think more than anything, that they just needed a response and um they they played really well obviously Werner having his hat trick of hitting both posts the left and the right and the crossbar I've genuinely never seen that before in a single game what just a unique player truly um it's gonna need to be at least that level of intensity um on Tuesday so I I'm not even going to put myself as cautiously op- optimistic in terms of uh, being able to turn it around, but I expect we'll see a much, much better performance from Chelsea um, 
in the second leg here, and I wouldn't be surprised if they won the game as well. Uh, turning it over completely. We'll see. They're going to need to be really clinical, I think. I, I just think they're going to need to be extremely clinical to, to, to get through this high now. Definitely. Yeah, I, look, I don't think Chelsea will get through. Um, I think the biggest difference, and I mentioned this last week, is that Real Madrid just have better players individually. Like, if you think about the top 20 players in the world at their best, maybe Conte's on that list. Beyond that, you could think of six Real Madrid players right now that, are, that could be on that list. I'm not saying they are, but it could be. And I think that kind of made the difference in last weekend's leg, or last week's um, first leg. Probably will be the difference in the second leg. Again, unless, being the big caveat here, Rian mentioned this perfectly last week, if they play at their absolute best, like they did against City, God, how long, months ago. So if that's the case, Chelsea have a shot. And look, you can beat this Real Madrid side. They have been beaten this season. But with a 3-1 lead at Madrid, it's difficult to overturn. So... I still think Madrid go through, but Chelsea definitely do have a shot. This this is not over, despite what Thomas Tuchel might be doing with his reverse psychology. So, yeah, look at it, and we'll see. We'll see. It's it's going to be difficult, especially playing at the Bernabeu. We saw, we see how that can make teams crumble in that atmosphere. But you know, flip side, we also saw what teams like Ajax could do a few years ago, exactly. too, right? So, um, yeah. Look, either way, I said it the Chelsea players are just going to need to play at like almost at, just pretty much at the same level that they were at for um, the semifinal last year against Real Madrid. So we'll see. So quick, quickly, what do you think happens in the Atletico um, City game? Atletico played one of their worst games of the seasons against um, Mallorca this past weekend, losing 1-0 on a penalty and had a total of one shot on target via Luis Suarez header. Um, I I expect City to still go through. I would not be surprised to see Atletico score. I think they will come out more so from the blocks than they, they did on the first leg for sure. I mean, that goes almost without saying because they have to. But I still very much expect, like, uh, I would expect like a 2-0 from City. Maybe a 2-1. Yeah, look, I'm still feeling pretty confident that City gets through that tie too. Definitely. But, yeah, like you, I expect I expect a, a more open game. <laughs> Look, that's it's hard to say with any Diego Simeone um team <laughs> or game, but I expect them to be more of a threat on the counter. I'll always I'll always say that. For sure. For sure. Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see how the Champions League goes. We'll be back with another episode after the Champions League uh second leg ties are done. Um right after probably Thursday morning, we'll have it out. And in the meantime, we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Enjoy the champions league and enjoy whatever football has to come. Thanks guys.